Happy Monday and welcome to the big time. Actually, you're at Richard Skipper Celebrates. For those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. My show is all about celebrating, celebrating life, celebrating art, celebrating artists. And boy, do we have a lot to celebrate this evening because I have Douglas Cohen on the show who has written this amazing book that I cannot put down. Thank you. <laughs> there are so many questions that I've got, and we're going to talk also about the big time. We just saw the promo for that. Uh, and uh, the music is phenomenal. And we're going to leave the audience with another song from this a little later. Uh, but, Doug, I always begin my shows by asking my guest, uh, who or what uh, are you celebrating? Uh, you've got so much to celebrate right now. So what did you celebrate today? Oh, that's an interesting question. Well, um, I'm, I'm actually preparing for something at the uh, American Popular Song Society. Well, it Saturday. just so happens that I know all about that. And I actually have all the information to share <laughs> with everybody as well with our mutual friend, Tom Toast. Tom Toast. Tom Toast is my longtime friend. He was the best man at my wedding. Did you know that? Wow. Yeah. Well, how did you and Tom meet? Uh, through actually Dennis Markell, who was a, a good friend of mine uh, from Amherst College. He was in the advanced BMI musical theater workshop with Tom. I was in the freshman year, the first year, or maybe it was the second. And, you know, um, we didn't cross pollinate in those days. We just worked with people in our section. But Dennis said, you know, there's this guy in, in the advanced class. Uh, he's looking for a composer, and I think he'd work well together. So that's how we got introduced. And we started writing songs. Remember Upstairs at O'Neill's? Oh, my God, yes. Yes. So Dennis and Doug Bernstein, who was his writing partner, uh, Doug was cast in the show. We all went to school together at Amherst College. And so Doug, right out of Amherst, got this leading role in Upstairs at O'Neill's. Dennis and Doug wrote four songs, three songs for it. And Tom and I auditioned many songs and got a lot of lovely nods and laughs from Martin but did not get into the show. But it did lead to a very nice collaboration. And we wrote a Charles Dickens Christmas together for Theatre Works USA, which is now licensed through uh, Music Theatre International. And we wrote Columbus uh, for the quincentennial of Christopher Columbus, which is not being performed anymore for reasons that you probably could understand. And uh, and we wrote a lot of songs. And uh, and so that's, that's how that whole thing started, yeah. So on Saturday afternoon, the 11th, you're gonna be doing uh, an interview, I guess, with Tom. Uh, but in addition to the interview, uh, several artists. Uh, I was a member, I was actually on the board for the American Popular Song Society for a while. Uh, incredible organization, uh, and they do great, great uh, works. Uh, but you'll be uh, having your songs performed, uh, but we also hear that you'll be performing a song yourself. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm going to be performing a song myself, and I'm actually going to be accompanying everyone, which is something I don't usually do. It's not uh, you know, it's funny because I, I was a pianist vocalist from the time I was 16 uh, to the time I was 23, but I don't like to necessarily accompany now. Uh, it, well, I shouldn't say that because I do accompany Lynn Henderson. I'm her music director, and that is that is a great privilege and pleasure, and we're having a new show. Uh, Lynn has a great show that's going to be opening on December 2nd at Don't Tell Mama, but I guess I don't usually play my own material. 
uh, it, it's too much stress. <laughs> well, I'm going to be there for Lynn because I love her as well. Oh, she's great. Um, yes. I, I when you write a song, you're expected to be able to play it. And, and sometimes I feel like, oh my God, you know, I, I'm, 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 get somebody else. Get Joe Falcon. <laughs> one of the things that I like to do when my shows, and you know, you go into your childhood a little bit in the book, yeah. uh, but I always like to go back to that five-year-old self. Because to me, the five-year-old self is the purest self. It's Absolutely. before life begins to tell you uh, that uh, you what you should be or what you shouldn't be, uh, how you should conduct yourself or not conduct yourself. Um, what were you like as a five-year-old? Um, and uh, you know, and that love of music uh, was really was something. It was like a, um, a dam that it exploded. Uh, with you, with all the opportunities that seemingly from your book seem to be unfolding for you. Yeah, so I go into a little bit of it in the book that I had that my maternal grandmother, uh, my Nana, was uh, a really accomplished concert pianist, jazz musician. Uh, she was the first woman in Philadelphia to get her musician's union card. And she came over from Edinburgh. Uh, before that, she was born, I believe, in Russia. But uh, she was the one who was the breadwinner for the family. Her father had, was deceased uh, and she had two sisters and a mother to support. And she did it through music. And I was privileged to be exposed to her artistry, you know, at a very young age. Uh, probably when she was, you know, when I was three years old, she probably played stride piano in front of me, you know. Um, so I discovered I could play by ear when I was like four years old. You know, so the, the big mu musicals at the time, whatever they were, the albums that we had, uh, Sound of Music, I would just go and be able to play them without reading music. And I was wedded to this little piano. It was barely two octaves. It was probably an octave and a half. And I could carry it wherever I went. And I, a little maybe TMI, but I even took it into the bathroom. I mean, that's how much <laughs> I was just, it was, it was like, you know, my best friend. Uh, so that was a, a wonderful experience being, you know, being able to uh, express myself at such a young age through music. I sang. Uh, I, I just enjoyed, I enjoyed life and I, and I followed my muse wherever I could. <laughs> and I was in home movies. I'm kind of off in my own world a lot of the time, to be very honest. You know, there's little Dougie just wandering off. I was very happy in my own world. Well, I, I want to talk about that for a moment because as I'm reading this book, first of all, you are a brilliant writer. Thank uh, you. So uh, the book is, I mean, every page is a page turner um, because those of us who are lucky enough to be in this profession, um, we are, uh, it's like uh, to quote Charles Strauss, uh, his quote with you in Chicken Soup. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> chicken Soup, yes. Yeah. Well, we are all part of that chicken soup mm -hmm. uh, and uh, certain circumstances are going to happen around us. But as I was reading the book, I was really amazed at how the details of these situations were happening. Um, I'm a big journal writer. I keep journals. Mm -hmm. I write every day. Uh, I'm a big proponent of Julia Cameron and the artist way. Yes. And uh, you also... Uh, kept journals from a very early age as well. What 
propelled you in addition to following your dreams as in the world of music to also keep journals? Yeah, it's very curious because I didn't keep journals growing up. You know, my sister had a diary. We weren't allowed to look at it, uh, but I knew she was writing it in every day. And I never did that. I would go to the piano. That was my diary. You know, I would compose and I would have a, a big old uh, tape recorder with the reel to reel. And I would sit there and, and compose and record. So I was recording, but I wasn't recording words. I was recording music. Then I went to camp, um, camp, not camp, it's felt like camp. I went to um, summer theater when I was 19 years old, college, college light opera company. Yeah, clock on Cape Cod. A lot of people went there, Ted Sperling and uh, Donna English. Uh, they weren't in my year, but they were very close to that time. And I was dealing with a massive inferiority, inferiority complex because there were so many talented people there who had far better voices than I did. And I had a journal and I decided this is my way of expressing whatever I'm experiencing. And that was my first time really being religious about keeping a journal. And it worked out pretty well. I remember looking at it, you know, a few years later and I was very pleased to see that I had captured the experience, but I hadn't thought about religiously keeping a journal until I started work on No Way to Treat a Lady. And the first entry was the night that William Goldman uh, came to my apartment to hear the songs. I just knew that that was something significant and I wanted to capture it like a photo. And having done that, when the show started to really take off, I just thought, well, I've, I've started this path. I've started this journey. I've started this journal. I need to write about it. And my mother was very insistent that I, that I keep up with it because there were times when I was so involved with just, I mean, you can not imagine when you're the book writer, lyricist, librettist, um, the composer, lyricist, librettist, and you're, you're you know, it's your world premiere. It's you don't cool. wear enough hats. <laughs> In New York, I mean, the pressure of New York City, you know, for my first time out. And I was just completely inundated. And But she would say, are you writing this down? <laughs> so, so you were sharing your experiences of what you were going through with everyone around you. Yes. Um, I love the fact that your mom referred uh, to him as your dear friend, you know, and uh, your friend yeah. William Goldman. Yes. yes, everyone that I had just the passing acquaintance with was a friend, <laughs> <laughs> which I love. I, who was that you that would be on television, and your mom would call you and say, "Your friend." Oh, well, so Jane Alexander. That that was a real friend, and she yeah, had, yeah, a, yeah. been a lifelong friend. I wrote her when I was thirteen years old, or something like that. Um, and a fan letter, and and we started this this correspondence that has to this day uh, continued. So that that was actually, <laughs> but she would say you're you're you never guess what your girlfriend Jen Alexander is up to next. Your girlfriend. <laughs> um, I want to go back uh, for uh, to something you just said a moment ago, and I'm gonna uh, at the risk of sounding like a therapist when I go yeah, here. Yeah. Uh, but when you said that you were out on the Cape, um, that you uh, had this inferiority complex. Mm. Was that something that was in place before you got there? Or was that something that developed after you got there? Uh, and if so, what do you, I mean, obviously you must, uh, you must have felt 
that you had the talent to get you there. Why do you feel that you were going through that at the time? Well, I never focused so much on performing. You know, I always thought of myself as uh, well-rounded. So, you know, I was at college, I was taking academic courses, I was writing. Um, I just had a lot of different skill sets. And then I was placed at College Art Opera Company where the emphasis was on the opera. I mean, they did musicals, but they had big voices. And I just didn't have that kind of instrument. So I did not get cast in, in many roles. And when I did, I was a character actor or weirdly enough, they, they cast me as a dancer. <laughs> and I'm not a dancer. Um, so I started to really reevaluate my life and my calling. And, uh, and it was very interesting because there was another uh, student, well, member of the company, uh, Eric, who um, was a lyricist and we started to write songs together. And that was the way I coped with being around people who I think had far superior voices. Uh, we wrote special material for people. And if there was a birthday of somebody we were very fond of, we wrote a special song and performed it for everyone. And they all received. And it gave me the confidence, I think, to uh, be able to survive that summer and also to be able to think about maybe I'm not cut out to be a performer. Maybe there's there's other things that I want to explore. Well, you, I mean, I love um, the fact that on a, on a dime, uh, the entire trajectory of our lives, our careers, everything can change. Yes. And that happened when you, first of all, saw the movie um, <laughs> of uh, No Way to Treat a Lady um, and how that started for you. Yeah, I was, uh, it was just an ordinary day, an ordinary Sunday. I think it was <laughs> 1984. 1984 maybe, 1985, um, and I was doing laundry and I had a small black and white TV. And I just thought, well, what's on, what's on? You know, it was just that channel. It happened to be the most opportune, you, you know, you can't really define what, why these things happen the way they do. Uh, it's, it's probably more than just, um, you know, kismet, but be that as it may, I saw this movie and it was at the beginning of the film and I just was fascinated. I was hooked. I mean, Rod Steiger was a priest going mm -hmm. to pay a social call and having this very, you know, civilized conversation over tea. And before I knew it, he was strangling this woman. It was horrifying. And I remembered the trailer from when I was a kid because it frightened me, just those three minutes of the trailer. Uh, so I was immediately you know, enraptured and I, I, I went to the piano for some reason. I just, it was right there. And I just thought, I see this as a musical. And every time there was a moment with George Siegel or Lee Remick and I just started writing songs and I had this tape recorder and I just was absolutely certain that this was my next project. It was a calling, you know, you just, people have callings. And I think this was uh, something that uh, I would have pursued no matter what. It was that, it, it was it was that visceral, not intense. Well, to to take us back to that time frame, you you know we didn't have YouTube in those days, um, mm. and uh, or the resources that we have now. So you reached your your father looked up you know and gave you 
you know, the background on uh, the the players beyond what you saw on screen. Yes, I have all these movie reference books uh, back at home where we lived in Storrs, Connecticut. My dad had taken me to see Lillian Gish when she was um, publicizing her book, The Movies, Mr. Griffith and Me. I was 11 years old. You know, growing up at UConn, it's so ironic because my wife and son are there right now. He is, he's working for this wonderful company called Pixis and he's uh, launching these beautiful drones that are going to be doing this amazing display for their client uh, tonight. And I'm of course here with you, which I'm delighted to be, but it's just ironic that that's where they are. Uh, oh, I'm up, sorry, I feel bad. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm really, believe me, I'm, I've, I've seen UConn a lot, but I've, it's just a very cool thing to think that he's there. Um, and UConn gave me so many benefits that I couldn't, you know, we, I grew up on a college campus and I, I took courses at the university and I took puppetry courses there. I mean, it was just an enriching experience. And uh, so anyway, I was exposed to classic films on a big screen. We're not mm -hmm. talking about DVDs. And, uh, and I, I saw the most amazing films at such a young age. I mean, I knew Carol Lombard's oeuvre by the time I was 13 years old. <laughs> you know, I'd seen Lubitsch films. I had seen right. um, Billy Wilder. Uh, it, was, it was quite incredible. And so I amassed a nice collection of film books and my dad had them. I didn't have them in New York. We didn't, you know, we can only slept so many things. So I called home and sure enough, he, he opened uh, this, this film book and my mother read the credits. And that's how I knew the book on which the film was based was written by William Goldman. Now, I want to go there for a moment. Yes. I came to New York in 1979 uh, before, and thank God it was before, because I, instead of DVDs and going to uh, Blockbuster, we went to revival houses. Yes. There were revival houses all over New York City. And I was in a revival house at least three nights a week mm -hmm. uh, watching these old films. But I did something that, and, and you did a similar thing in your book. Um, I, and we eventually became good friends. Um, I looked Celeste home up in the oh. phone book and I called her and, uh, and we became friends. Um, but you also had a similar experience with looking up William Goldman yes. and, uh, Take us there. I, I don't want to give away too much because we want people to buy the book. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but how that first encounter and what that experience was like for you. Uh, and I'm a huge fan of William Goldman's books, um, but to meet him face to face and to tell him what your desire was with taking the novel and making it into a musical. Well, there were there were a couple steps that came even before that. One was that I had written a show uh, with Susan DeLallo and Norman Klein in 1983 in the Village at the Inner Circle Supper Club on Jane Street, which no longer exists. But uh, it was a nice little club, and it was called This Week in the Suburbs. And there was a cast member, Terry Berenger, who was very close to Eileen Goldman, Bill's wife. Mm -hmm. So they came to see the show when I was actually reading Adventures in the Screen Trade. And that was my introduction to Bill Goldman. Uh, they, they came on the only night that it went well. And he wrote to Doug, it was thrilling, Bill, 
you know, it was, it was a very lovely um, inscription. And so I had that introduction. And then just coincidentally, two years later, I see this movie and it's Bill Goldman. And I thought, I've got this in the bag. I mean, this is going to be a slam dunk. He already loved my other show. <laughs> and, I, and I had his address from the phone book and I wrote him a letter and I waited. I waited about three weeks and I heard nothing back. And I decided I was going to call him. I called him from work. It was three o'clock in the afternoon. He thought it was a very odd choice to musicalize that novel, which is a very, very dark novel, by the way, which I later was to learn. And he said, okay, let's meet tonight at seven. And it was going to be in my apartment, which <laughs> you know what those first apartments are like. Oh yeah, of course. <laughs> and I'm thinking a two-time Academy Award-winning writer is going to be at this apartment. Uh, and you know, it, it's, it's a mess and, you know, I just, there were so many things that had to be done and I was at work. I was at my job, but my, my boss gave me her blessing and I, I ran home and got everything ready and performed the songs for him. And again, not a slam dunk. He really liked them, but he thought it was an odd choice, uh, for, you know, just, he, he couldn't quite see what I saw. The vision was different because his vision produced a novel that was very dark and disturbing. My vision was something closer to the movie, but that integrated some of, of course, what he had written and also had this, what I thought was a very cool conceit, which was to have the two mothers, the detective's mother and the killer's mother and all the victims played by the same woman. Because that way, we're really fusing those worlds and making the connection between Morris Brummel and Kit Gill that much stronger because they actually share the same actress in common, <laughs> even though she's playing different roles, if that makes sense. So anyway, I had this vision and, and uh, I, I shared it with him. And I think he really was starting to come around. But he said, I can't stop you from writing it but I encourage you to look at other projects. And I, in my, I say in the book, in my 23 year old mind, I heard that as keep <laughs> going, see you in September. <laughs> exactly, which I love. I mean, the, the naivete of that, of being young. Yes. And, uh, going, I, you know, I saw John Grisham uh, was on an interview uh, a few, he's got a, a sequel to The Firm. And he said that when he first went out to Hollywood, Stephen King said, I'll give you advice to go into this business. Number one, get the money up front. Uh, uh, number two, let go of your concept of what it's going to be. Uh, and number three, get the money up front. Uh, so, which I thought was great. Uh, you, you really, with everything that you were doing, rather than going to the movie itself, you really wanted to go back to the original source material. And you truly wanted to honor what he had brought to this through a different lens. Exactly, exactly. I mean, there were definitely things that I took from the book because I later got the rights and it would be foolish not to take anything that William Goldman writes is gold. Let's put it that way. But I also knew that there were things that would have made it very difficult for audiences at that time. Perhaps today I might have tried to go darker. It's very possible, 
But at that time, 1985, I mean, Sweeney Todd had arrived on the scene, yes, but Sweeney Todd was not particularly successful, even though it won all those Tonys. It was an anomaly. And uh, most of the shows that were being presented were, were very different from Sweeney Todd. So it was still, people did look at this as a very macabre, odd choice at the, at the time. And uh, I don't think they would necessarily share that opinion today, but some might. <laughs> well, looking back at that time, uh, I mean, do you think that Sweeney Todd would have made its way to Broadway in 1979 uh, with a different team? Let's say Stephen Sondheim was not involved. Uh, I mean, he was the driving force that got yes. it to, to Broadway. And Prince, exactly. And how No, absolutely. I, I, it'd be very hard for me to even fathom other people attracted to the project. You know, I can't say we mentioned Charles Strauss. I don't think Charles Strauss would have said, I want to do this cannibalistic musical as my next project. I, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe he would, maybe he would, but it was a very daring choice at the time. And, um, and I remember getting the prospectus from it. I, I, I saw an ad in the paper and I thought, well, I'm, what, I was 19, 20 years old. I, I'm not gonna invest in a musical, but I wanna see what this is all about. And I remember just reading the, the summary, the synopsis, and I just thought, it can't be done. <laughs> well, it can't. Do you remember the first time you saw it? Oh, one of the greatest events that I've ever attended. That final moment when that door slams, wow, it was, it was so powerful, so powerful. It was great. I saw the original cast. Uh, Chris Cronendale was in it, but not Victor Garber. And Chris sang beautifully, and it was a very, very fine performance. But those two leads. I really, you know, I, I really want to acknowledge the attention that you give at the beginning of the book also. Uh, to the ASCAP Musical Theater Workshop mm -hmm. uh, and what that that whole period. I mean, how lucky uh, you were. It may not have always felt that way <laughs> uh, based on what I read, uh, but you were so lucky to be in the company of so many uh, instrumental people in uh, the world of musical theater. Uh, and if you can also tell our audiences a little bit about what that was all about in that period. And, uh, and then we're gonna move ahead to the events that started to unfold. Sure. Well, when you come to New York and you want to write for musical theater, they always tell you there's two places that you can go to. One is to learn your craft, which is BMI. That was Lehman Engel's BMI Musical Theater Workshop. And the other was the ASCAP Musical Theater Workshop. Very different um, approaches. So BMI was all about learning the technique, learning how to write an I want song, you know, which every character has. Mm -hmm. um, if, if we're to really believe in that character and, and uh, want to follow them throughout the show, we have to be invested. So that's, that's what you get through the I want song. And, you know, charm songs and comedy songs and Willie Loman death songs, suicide songs. We were doing all these different projects that they would assign us like Blanche Dubois song, her charm song, I think, or her ballad, um, musicals that would not have been written, but we were still being asked to provide that element. Uh, great education, wonderful teachers, um, Skip Kennan, uh, Maury Yeston, uh, Ed Cleavan. Uh, I also, there were times when I attended when Alan Menken was 
presiding. I mean, you know, heavyweights. Um, and then there's ASCAP. ASCAP was also an audition. You would only meet probably about 10 times and then it dissolved. So it was maybe once, once or twice a month. I can't remember. Maybe it was once a week, but um, you presented twice and you only did two songs each time and you never knew who the panel was going to be. And the panel was very starry, not mm -hmm. just writers, but anyone in the industry. So uh, my particular night, it was Charles Strauss, who was always the common denominator. He was there presiding as a moderator every week. And then uh, Stephen Schwartz, uh, Burton Lane, and Frank Rich. So Titans, all mm -hmm. incredible forces in the theater. And uh, people who are familiar with the movie Tick, Tick, Boom would know that there is that scene when Jonathan Larson presents uh, his songs from Superbia and Sondheim is on the panel. And I was there. We, you know, many of us were. We, I, I remember it very vividly. And uh, when Sondheim was on the panel, it was just Sondheim and Charles Strauss because do we really want to hear from anyone else when Sondheim's on the panel? <laughs> I mean, in addition to being one of the most brilliant writers, he was so smart in, in, in critiquing. You know, he had a real, he, it was an art with him. Everything was an art. Um, so that was what ASCAP was like. ASCAP was not about teaching you how to do the nuts and bolts. Uh, as I say, it's the coffee and the Danish because we would break at intermission and have coffee in Danish and we get to schmooze. And that was a networking opportunity for many, uh, but it also could lead to a real, you know, a, a, a stepping stone in your career. And in my case, it definitely did because I had four people on the panel that uh, liked what I was doing, encouraged me, and Frank Rich was the lead theater critic of the New York Times at the time. And unbeknownst to them, William Goldman was in the audience. So he heard it all. <laughs> and that, was, that was the turning point. And, you know, and it's things started, I, I want to, I want everyone to buy the book. Um, I always encourage people, rather than rushing to ask uh, to um, Amazon, I was going to say ASCAP, rushing to Amazon and getting the book, call your favorite bookseller. And Shakespeare ask and Company, it. right across, yeah. like on the west side, Shakespeare and Company is going to carry it if they haven't already. So, And Barnes and Noble has it. But we should have more and more book uh, stores yes. carrying this. Call your favorite bookstore. Oh, and drama, the Drama Bookshop. And even the, the Shed. Has it. The Shed and, has it where if you go to see... Um, the late the, the last Sondheim show, uh, it's it's in their uh, it's in their bookshop. Somebody sent me a photo. That's amazing. Um, so I want to talk about process and uh, when uh, you know you know a lot of time has passed. You you've gone through uh, the mill and back with this book and the experiences that you went through. Um, at what point did you feel? this is a story that I want to share with other people. And what did you hope that people who would be reading this book, a lot of people are going to read this book who may not be in the theater. Yes. A lot of people may read the book who are absolutely going through the same things that you went through. Um, what was your, what was the 
light bulb moment where you said, I need to tell this story uh, to a broader audience. Uh, that's just a two-part question. And then what were you hoping that audiences would get from this book? Great questions. Um, so I, through all these experiences, and London was three months, so I had a lot of journaling in London. <laughs> London was like an outward bound experience, you know? It was like they just dropped you someplace and hoped that you had enough tools to survive. And by, my, by the skin of my teeth, I did. So uh, that and, and Italy and Cohoes and all these places that I had kept these journals, I thought they were only going to exist as something that I would just leave behind to my son, who I didn't know if he'd want to read them. Um, and maybe I'd donate them to the Lincoln Center Library, that, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Then the pandemic happened and I was watching Netflix, I think, and it was the documentary, the, the best worst thing that could have happened, which I'd seen at Alice Tully Hall before the pandemic. Yeah, Merrily We Roll Along, yes. yes. Yeah. It's Lonnie right. Price's documentary on Merrily and, and not just the show itself and not just that world premiere production, but everything that happened to them since that moment. And I'd seen Merrily, I was in New York maybe a year, year and a half, and I went to see it and I, um, I wasn't, I didn't audition for it. I wasn't invested in it. I wasn't an investor, um, but I sat there on the couch watching that documentary and crying. Mm -hmm. And I had to ask myself, why am I having such an emotional response? And I think it was because I identified Merrily as the time that I was also uh, pursuing the theater as a writer at the same, at that pretty much the same time. Jason Alexander, who was a major force in Merrily, was my Mo Brummel, my detective Morris Brummel in all the demos, all the Dacker's auditions, the ASCAP presentation. Uh, Lonnie Price later directed No Way to Treat a Lady, and that's a whole story in itself. Uh, Liz, yes, Liz Calloway was the star of the Hudson Guild production. So all these alums uh, figured very prominently in my life. And I started to think about those journals. And I really wanted to get my hands on them <laughs> uh, and see if there was something there. And I started to just type them up better to at least preserve them. And sure enough, I was, it was like going into a time machine. It was so vivid and I had done my work well <laughs> in translating my experience. And I just knew at that point that I had to do something with it. It was the same kind of conviction I think that I had when I first saw the movie of No Way to Treat a Lady that I wanted to musicalize it. I knew at that moment that I had to do this book and I didn't know what would come of it. You never know with anything. And I, I've been so disappointed in the past with so many projects, but um, although there's been some lovely things too, I don't want to just make it like there's been disappointment, but, uh, but you just don't know. And my father who was still alive at the time had written two books and one of them was published and one of them he had to self-publish. And it was very, very tough going through that whole process with him. But I didn't think about it. 
I thought about how rewarding this was, how enjoyable it was to write and be and be this empowered and not have to worry about all these other factions that I could just focus on my expressions, mm -hmm. my being able to um, create something that was for me. And yet at the same time, I wanted to share it with others. And you asked, that was the two-part question. I felt as if a lot of people in the theater do not, are not able to represent what this struggle is. You know, we, we're so often seeing people collect awards. Oh, you know, he's got this Tony Award for Hamilton or, you know, and, and we always celebrate the success stories. But there's a lot of people out there who are doing the nitty gritty, who are in the trenches working and getting produced. And their story is not known. And one of the very gratifying things about writing this book is that I've been able to hear from so many people who said, okay, maybe I didn't have an actress who was nearly stabbed to death, but <laughs> <laughs> I went through something not dissimilar or I had that ex experience with that director that also made my head spin. And sure enough, these stories it, it's just, we are, we're like people who go through battles, you know, and, and, um, and yet we em emerge, uh, not, I won't say necessarily triumphant, but we keep doing it. We keep returning to the scene of the crime because we love what we're doing. And we and that's want- That's a very interesting point. I mean, there are some th things that I read in the book and then you have to show up at rehearsal the next day after certain things have happened. You have to, you know, face, you know, your demons over and over and over again. Yeah. And we're fortunate to do that. Anytime we're in rehearsal, we are fortunate to do that. Um, I, I think that one of the reasons why I never gave up on this show was because I saw every experience as a new possibility. Mm -hmm. It was a gift. Mm -hmm. Even the ones that didn't seem as glamorous were, were still opportunities to make the show better. And I mean, you're revisiting um, these journals um, during a pandemic yeah. uh, when the world is in a dark place to begin with. So what did this do for you emotionally uh, going through it. I mean, were you able to detach yourself from what you had experienced previously? Um, or did it, all of those feelings resurface again? They did resurface. And they resurface every time I open the book, to be very honest with you. And it's not, I'm not unhappy about that. I like revisiting that. Even, even the moments that are emotionally uh, the most arduous. Um, also, one of the things that happened during the course of writing this was my father, unfortunately, became increasingly weaker as he he had survived COVID, but then he fell and had like eight fractures, and it was just. Mm. Sorry. And ultimately, um, six months after writing it, he passed. But but it really allowed me to connect with him, both when he was living 
and when he was gone. So this book has given me so much beyond what you see on the page. It's, it's a lifeline and it's a connection. And I do really hope that people who love theater or people who are not really that invested in theater, read it like you would read Studs Terkel's Working. This mm -hmm. is a slice of life. This is what an artist goes through. I don't like using that word because it sounds somewhat pretentious, but... Um, I use it all the time. So uh, go with artist. Okay, <laughs> I'm gonna go with it. I'm no, gonna, go with but it. this is what we do. This is what we do. And uh, and it's, it's sometimes incredibly uh, gratifying and sometimes very harrowing. <laughs> and sometimes you feel that you're in a very vulnerable place because you don't know if anyone out there is quite on your side, you know, and you have to have a lot of faith in yourself or whatever that impetus to write that show initially has to, that spark has to stay and guide you through each of these tasks uh, or, or you just like throw up your hands. And there were times when I definitely wanted to do that, but I think my love of the show never diminished. That's amazing. Um, forgive me for not knowing the answer to this next question, but is there an audiobook of this, or are you? Is that something that's in the plan? I wish. I wish there was an audiobook. I I mentioned it to my editor, um, Chris Chappelle. He's a very good guy. Chris, if you're watching, pay attention. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I and I would even. I shouldn't say this, but I would do it for free. <laughs> I just think there's something, you know, it's so funny because Adam Gruper is a dear, dear friend and he had done so many productions and he got to do um, Jim, James Lapine's uh, book put, uh, uh, on Sunday in the Park, putting mm -hmm. it together. And I think he does, is he, he's, either, he's either James or he's Sondheim. And uh, I thought, well, Maybe we can hire Adam to be me. <laughs> no, I asked that question because as I'm reading the book, I felt almost as if I was hearing your voice throughout the entire book. I'm really in there. It's not, it's, you know, it, it's not like a document. There's nothing dry about this book. All my neuroses are very much on display and, and proud. I'm proud of them really, because they they come from my parents and, uh, and you know they they have they have a lot of idiosyncrasies, but I just feel like that's that's who I am. That's the, that's my genealogy, and and it's what makes this show interesting. I think because some of that is integrated into the show, and uh, and I want to be able to tell this story. I want to tell it the way I experienced it. So I don't want it to be clinical. No, I mean, it's incredible. I, I mentioned earlier Julia Cameron and the artist way. And, you know, part of her process uh, is that we do morning pages each day and we write for no other reason but to just write um, and that no one else will ever see it. Uh, that And uh, I did a, a an artist way workshop where someone said, I'm just afraid that people will see what I've written. And I said, well, after you write it, make confetti out of it. And that's what she does. She puts everything in a jar, and on New Year's Eve, she throws it all out. Um, wow, I don't know that, if I could do that. <laughs> no, that's her. Yeah. Um, and that's bringing me my, to my next question with you. Uh, when you're writing this, uh, these journals years ago, 
you also were writing your feelings, putting them on paper, your experiences, but they were putting them on. Uh, you know, 63 is on the horizon for me. And as I am careening towards that number, yeah. um, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day and he said, at this point in your life, you have nothing to prove. You are living your authentic self. You're here to tell your story. And I applaud you for that as well. Um, did you, I mean, did you self-censor yourself at all um, uh, going from journal to now this book? Or did you feel I'm telling the story as I lived it? I, I didn't do much censoring. I didn't want to hurt anyone. You know, I do really, a lot of people have passed. Uh, and there were things that uh, people, some people who are still here and even people who are no longer here, but family members or dear friends, I really wanted to be sensitive to that. Um, there may be things that some people do object to. And for that, I'm sorry, but it's what happened. You know, I, I just, I have to be honest about it. But no, I really, I really made it, my mind up that I was going to be very forthright. And, and I, and you know, it's interesting when you're, when you're writing a book like this, it's like you're confessing. It didn't feel like I was writing a book for other people. It felt like I was writing a book for myself. And I, you can't fool yourself. You know what I mean? It's just, it's, it felt dishonest not to at least be true to those. What things. is the one thing that you've learned about yourself from writing this book? And what is the biggest aha moment that you have received from others that experience these same stories that have come back and talked to you about these? Hmm. I guess I feel proud, <laughs> proud to have survived. <laughs> um, as you can see, it's still a very emotional journey. Yeah. For you. Uh, and you're very good at what you do, Richard. You're really a great interviewer. You truly are. Um, Thank you. Uh, but I guess when you see it in this form and realize that it's like 11 or 12 years of your life that's been distilled into some 250 pages, and you, you're able to present it to the world. You survived. You know, there were a lot of things in here that could have beaten me down, could have also just made me say, you know what, I'm not going to write again. <laughs> this, this is just not worth it. And, and yet continually, I've come back. And I guess that's what I feel coming from this, is that uh, I made something productive out of this experience. I made a hat, I uh, made a book. Um, and I feel as if I, maybe I can put it to bed now, you know? Maybe this is also my way of saying, I can move on. And it's not done. I mean, you're, there's your productions of this happening, thank oh, God. yes, in fact, I went to Edinburgh and saw yes. a fringe production and I, I took a journal along and, uh, I had a wonderful experience there. I got COVID on my way out, but that. <laughs> well, I'm going to shift gears. I'm going to shift gears. Uh, everyone, get this book. You will thank me. It's an incredible book, uh, and all the information, the links, everything will be on my YouTube channel. Um, 
I I have a little saying that I say at the end of my shows um, that uh, you'll hear a little bit later. But, um, you know, if you're going to do a show um, that takes place on a cruise ship, yes. uh, Doug, you need a skipper. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to talk about the big time because, first of all, uh, the songs are incredible. Uh, I listened to your interview uh, a few weeks ago with Donald Feltham. Oh, yeah. uh, I love that interview. I love what he does and in incorporating all the music into it. Um, and uh, Edie Gourmet, um, Debbie Gravett, yeah. I worship at her feet. And if she hears this, I just absolutely adore her. Um, and she is the perfect person to be a part of this project. Uh, tell everyone about The Big Time. Well, I have to preface it by saying it, The Big Time is really something that happened because of Douglas Carter Bean. He dreamt this premise. It's a great premise. <laughs> and he first concocted it as a screenplay. And I think he wanted Liza Minnelli for it. This was many, many years ago. He talked to Oliver Stone, who was coming off of Platoon and some major hits. And, uh, and Oliver Stone was going to film this. Uh, and the way Doug tells it is that uh, Oliver Stone wanted more blood and guts and Doug wanted more show tunes. So they had a party of the ways. But it's this really- I love that story. Crazy yeah. premise. It's very kind of Marx Brothers. It reminds me a little bit of a duck soup kind of thing because mm -hmm. there's, there's definitely um, a sense of, uh, you know, that it, it, it's talking about something that's relevant and uh, political, but yet we don't get didactic about it. It's really an entertainment. But it takes place in 1962, a second-rate lounge act, Tony and Donna Steveniti get booked on the wrong boat. Their show is supposed to be on the floating dead. They get booked on a UN peacekeeping vessel, which was intended for Steve Lawrence and Edie Gourmet. Mm -hmm. And it, the vessel is taken over by Soviet dissidents disguised as cater waiters. And they have to save the world, not through violence, but through Western entertainment. So that is the premise of the big time. It's pretty delicious. And, and you know, I think that people tend to think, especially if you hear the score, uh, you hear some of Doug's wonderful book, but, but some of it you think, oh, it's very lighthearted. And it is very lighthearted. But underneath that, it is about our very existence. Mm -hmm. It's about how there are certain tyrannical rulers, dictators, uh, who are ready and willing to sacrifice everything in the same way that performers are interested in, in sacrificing for their art. Excuse me one second, I'll be off camera. Um, but uh, they try just as hard as the artists do, to uh, to get to to uh, achieve their results, and so this is happening as the world is threatening to come to an end, you know, and so there's this sense that of foreboding, and yet the entertainment is life generating, mm -hmm. and each of these people, whether or not they originally liked entertainment or eschewed it, they 
are transformed by it. It's transformational. I mean, you've got a CIA director uh, and undersecretary Penelope Petri, both of whom, you know, have nothing to do with the entertainment business. And yet by the end of the show, they're converts. You have the three of the four uh, uh, Soviet spies who have this Achilles heel because they, one of them loves jazz, one of them loves stand-up comedy and the other likes choreography. And they've suppressed it because that's what you do. That in certain countries, you're not allowed to express your, your creative side. And yet these two entertainers allow them to blossom as, as artists and individuals. So there's something very, it, it just, it, it's, it's something that feels as if it's a very personal struggle that each of us seems to uh, inhabit. And when you were talking about who I was as a five-year-old and how I was fortunate enough to let that five-year-old give my life shape, there are mm -hmm. a lot of people who were shut down at five years old. That's right. And they didn't have that opportunity. And the big time is about those people who can then tap into that joy and the people that also help us to forget what it is that we're plagued by, the pain that we go through, the everyday entertainers who do their job and do it well, because for a few hours, you forget the state of the world. That's the big time. And that's what it's about. Uh, I, I, I want to ask you, uh, it, it, we're going to wrap this up in just a moment. I could go on for two hours with you. But did you have anything at all to do with the casting? Because you've got a phenomenal cast on this CD. Yes and no. I mean, Debbie, yes. Debbie, Debbie, Debbie. And I am a huge fan of Debbie's. And, oh. uh, you know, what's so special about her is just that amazing voice. But she also she has so much heart you know it's like she she's just so authentic <laughs> yeah. um and somebody i forget who it was who was a casting person had the brilliant idea to cast will swenson as pavlov i never would have considered him a pavlov and he's he's kind of genius at it uh mm -hmm. jackie hoffman was a friend of doug carter beans so she was there. michael mccormick i did bring in uh, Bradley Dean, I brought in, uh, Santino. Thank you, Doug. I mean, he, he had a relationship with Santino. We did a concert at the McArthur. He came in and did Tony. He's one of the most talented people on the planet. And then Diane Phelan was actually recommended to me by, uh, Mary Mitchell Campbell. And mm -hmm. I do want to just add before we go, before we conclude that August Eric Smoen is the orchestrator of the big time and the co-producer of the album. And he is, he should be above the title. He is so great at what he does. And he did all the orchestrations for uh, Only Murders in the Building. And it's very hard for me to, you heard that the exit music as we entered the show. <laughs> uh, that is one of the most popular songs in the album, on the album, uh, on Spotify and uh, and I, it doesn't have a single lyric in it. <laughs> so thank you, August. <laughs> I want to bring up a comment here, and this is what makes this all worthwhile for me. Sean Patrick Murtaugh, thank you so much for doing this show. I'm so happy I was able to tune in. Me too. I have been connected to Doug on Facebook for years, and I'm getting so much more that you don't get on social media. 
Tell your friends to tune in. And he also says, looking forward to reading. Ah. <laughs> Thank you, Sean. <laughs> we're going to end with uh, another song from the big time. Um, I'm going to give my closing comments. Then I'm going to turn it over to you. You've got the final word. And when you say goodbye, don't worry about how to end everything. Debbie is going to show up and she's going <laughs> to tell us out. Um, so I want to thank you all for tuning in tonight. Um, as I said before, get this book, call your favorite bookseller and ask them if it's on their bookshelves. And if it's not, ask them to get it. Then what I want you to do is I want you to order two copies of this book. I want you to keep one for yourself. And then I want you to go to Facebook and I want you to reach out to the first name that pops up and reach out with a phone call. Not an email message, not a text message, not a private inbox message, a phone call. And let that person know the impact that they've made on your life. And then send them a copy of this book. Wow. Uh, it This book is going to make an impact. I can't wait for the movie version of this. <laughs> thinks the London, the London portion should be a movie, yeah. Oh, it has to be a movie. And Netflix, uh, pay attention. Uh, it should be uh, a showtime. It, it belongs out there. I end every show by telling everyone to go out and do something nice for somebody else. Uh, pick up the phone. Really make that phone call. It's important. I have a dear friend, Sean Moniger, and he says, we're all in the same storm, but we're in different size boats. And I always say, I don't care what size boat you're on, as long as you have a skipper by your side. <laughs> and with that, I'm going to leave the screen. Uh, like I said, you've got the final word. And when you finish, it could be about anything that we spoke about that you want to build upon, anything that we didn't talk about that you wish we had, uh, or just any final message you want to leave everyone with, and then we'll hear Debbie. It's all yours. Thank oh my you. God, I didn't expect this. Well, I just want to thank you, Richard, because um, growing up, I always saw the interviews with Merv Griffin, and uh, he had this wonderful way of just connecting with people and really listening to them. And because of that, we had meaningful conversation. And I guess that's what I want to just leave you all with is that uh, it's the connection really that counts. So uh, I wish you all those meaningful conversations, those meaningful connections and uh, support art and artists because um, they, they have their heart in the right place. And I think it's really what's going to hopefully save the world. Thank you. What do you know? No longer a zero. Who is this guy? Look at him go. My own superhero. Who is this guy? Someone who's brawny and brazen and brash is finally doing his part. There may be a groom in this half god, half human who find there is room in my heart. Smart as a whip. Like Einstein on steroids, who is this guy? Man, I could flip for someone with his daring do. Who is this guy? I think I once knew. Saturday night on South Street, eating hoagies and cheesesteaks. Cheesecakes and sharing egg creams and sharing our dreams. Sunday mornings on Arch Street, 
making plans, making music, harmonizing our voices in song, blending like nobody can. Sunday morning on Art Street. 